This is one of the last episodes Roddenberry really presided over, and not in a good way. Um, I, I don't mean anything against him or the episode. Rather, what I mean is that this is when his health was really starting to nosedive. He showed up because this was a Major Barrett episode, and he wanted to be with his wife, obviously. But <clears throat> from this point, I mean, I already talked about how Roddenberry was kicked upstairs in terms of production of the show. From this point on, he had less and less of presence because his health was really starting to deteriorate and unfortunately would never actually recover. Apparently Colin Powell actually came on the set for this episode as well, who at the time was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is interesting. This is because they actually wanted to do basically a, a pseudo-knighting ceremony, where Will Wheaton was actually given the, uh, the flags that Rodber himself had earned back in the Navy, or Air Force, I forget which, please forgive me. It's one of the two. <clears throat> this is also commensurate with the whole idea of Wesley finally becoming an, a, a full ensign rather than an acting ensign. And, well, I'll comment on that more in a bit, but I, all I want to say is that I don't like this episode, except for the Wesley parts. And that's the second time I've had to say that in the course of doing these ruminations. In fact, if I'm being completely blunt, if not for two things, well, honestly, this episode would probably be lamentation territory for me, because I just don't enjoy it. But I'll get more to that in a second. <clears throat> or right now. You see, the writers of this episode have flat out said this is supposed to be a comedy. It's funny. And yet one of the things I've noticed is that Star Trek can be funny. Legitimately funny. And obviously humor is a very varied type of thing. Not everyone is going to find the same stuff funny and blah blah blah. But I can say without hesitation that Star Trek has made me laugh many times in my life. But I've also noticed a weird trend that everyone Star Trek, every time Star Trek deliberately tries to be funny, it tends to fail. Now that's not universally true. Sometimes a comedy episode succeeds. Both of the Tribbles episodes come to mind immediately for episodes that were designed to be funny and somehow managed to succeed at it. And yet, for every time we see that, we see episodes like, well, this one. Isn't it funny how gross she thinks he is and now she has to kiss him? Oh, that's his... Hysterical. I mean, she's getting her comeuppance by being forced to deal with someone who's even more egotistical and, and horrible and self-important than she is. Isn't that funny? No judgment if any of you actually like this episode or find it funny. I just didn't. And it's hard to ruminate, to dissect or analyze comedy. I mean, I could sit down and try to discuss the nature of comedic values and jokes to you, but when I'm discussing a specific comedic work, it's always like, well, gosh, what am I supposed to say about this? So I'm going to do my best here. I do want to point out one thing. Something I've made an issue of many times before is whether or not you can beam through the shields. And the reason I do that, in case you haven't heard, is because it's not a minor thing. It's not a little thing off to the side that nobody cares about. Now, granted, I tend to be very pro-continuity, so I like it when little details are brought forward. But I really hate it when big details are ignored. Because not being able to beam through the shields has been a major plot point multiple times in basically all the Star Treks. And at the same time, there have been many times where the solution of the day was to beam through the shields, because they just suddenly could. Now, the answer for this is just writing inconsistency. That, that really is. There's, there's no reason to try and argue around this in any other manner. It is just writing inconsistency. But one of the other weird little things that always has bothered me a little bit is whether or not Betazoids can read Ferengi. As of this point, right now, with this Ferengi episode, we're actually half and half. 
because sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Sometimes within a single episode, they flip-flop on that one. And this one, they can't, again. Now, I believe they do finally codify that by the time DS9 rolls around, and it's finally the, no, really, they can't read them. But it's just kind of like, really? <laughs> they even make a big point about it right at the beginning. Anyways, <clears throat> so then they play 3D chess. How many of you are aware of the fact that 3D chess is a real thing with real rules? How many of you are aware that there's actually multiple different rule sets, most of which were fan-created over the years, for how 3D chess actually works? How many of you have played any of those? Unfortunately or not, i got to raise my hand all three of those, but it's been a really long time. I've actually been thinking about picking up like a 3D chess thing sometime for a uh, board game night or something, seeing if we have something like that. I just think that would be kind of a cool thing. Anyways. So, Loxana is... Arrogant, overbearing, and loud, and obnoxious, and isn't that funny? And so people try to get away from her, as she herself is being accosted by Damon Tog, who is loud, and overbearing, and obnoxious, and isn't that funny? What I want to know is how aware of this Loxana is. Now, I know Loxana herself is something of a divisive figure. To be 100% clear about my opinion, I'm actually fully supportive of Major Barrett. She was awesome. The end. Like, I don't even think that one's a debatable, unlike some other more divisive figures in Star Trek history. But Loxana Troy herself? Uh, I could name two episodes off the top of my head that I find her to be tolerable in. And in fact, I actually think she's good, legitimately good, in both of those episodes. One's over on Deep Space Nine, which we've actually already covered by now, and one's one that's coming up in the future with Loxana and Troy. You probably know the one I'm talking about if you're aware of it. And that's it. She's it's not just the obnoxious, overbearing, irritating part. It's also partially the fact that there's a total lack of awareness of it. That at no point in time does it occur to her that maybe there's a reason other people try to avoid her. Now, maybe that is part of it. As we find out in the 1DS9 episode I just mentioned, one of the things Luxon is really big about is trying to stand out. Not being ordinary, not being normal. She hates normal. It's mundane, boring, and bland. And you know what? I understand and sympathize with that idea. But I don't know how much of that is written into her character at this point in history, which, remember, even in real life, never mind in character, was several years before that DS9 episode. It's an interesting thing to think about, because it might mean that maybe she is fully aware of just how much other people can't stand her presence, and she accepts that because at least she's getting their attention, and she's not being, well, she's not being Ambassador 375, you know what I mean? Everyone knows who Loxana Troy is and how different she is from everyone else. Food for thought. I find myself thinking about that subject often in this episode, actually. Not just because of Major Barrett's performance, but more because of her wardrobe. I know that sounds strange, but I actually have my own particular aesthetics. Several people will tell me they're terrible when it comes to clothing on both male and female. And every outfit I saw her in just made me go, and vomit was everywhere. Okay, slight exaggeration, but you know what I mean. I didn't like any of them. And yet, all of them were very eye-catching. Not in a good way, but in a, whoa, what's that, kind of a way. And again, it made me think that maybe that's the point, that she is deliberately trying to stand out by wearing terrible outfits, right? I don't know, just food for thought. Anywho, <clears throat> so then we see the two Ferengi, played by Frank Cons uh, Corsentino, excuse me, Frank Corsentino, and by Ethan Phillips, 
Now, uh, both of these are actually uh, repeating Ferengi actors. In fact, if you'll notice, most of the actors who play Ferengi tend to play other Ferengi over the course of the of the shows, plural. Uh, Corsentino actually played Bach back in uh, season two, I think it was, in TNG, Damon Bach. He also plays uh, Gedges over on Voyager in the episode Inside Man, the one with the Barkley hologram. So he's kind of a long-standing uh, vet himself as far as Ferengi. Ethan Phillips, of course, also plays uh, a Ferengi uh, whose name I, apparently, I, I, jittled, I actually have no idea what his name is. I actually have it written down right here, and I can't read my own handwriting. Hang on. It's okay. I've got Ethan Phillips right here because I'm always ready for this kind of thing nowadays. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, I know Ulis. Oh, f- uh, Ferrick, duh, that's his name. He plays Ferrick in this episode, God. But he also plays Ulis back in Enterprise, making him, chronologically speaking, one of the first um, Ferengi we ever encounter. Although, obviously, those are the only two major roles he played. I think he had a bit part over in Voyager as well, but I'm not really sure about that. Either way, I actually do like Ethan Phillips as an actor, so I think he does a good job here. And I think Corsentino does a very good job as Tog, as well as Bach, so we're with it. Quick note I had, Tog is quickly smitten with Luxana, and I have no idea why, <laughs> but, you know, personal preference is personal preference. I just had a whole speech about that to my niece just yesterday, so I, I totally get the concept. I mean, black licorice, right? But I noticed that there's a weird trend across most of Star Trek in Ferengi enjoying or or seeking after women who are very strong-willed and very opposed to the Ferengi. Have you ever noticed that? Like, that is a recurring thing across most of TNG and all of Deep Space Nine. And I find myself wondering if that's like a species-wide thing, that they're so used to the severe level of submissiveness of Ferengi females that there's something appealing about alien females and the fact that they are the exact opposite of such submissiveness. Just food for thought, just something that I was curious about. So then there's this really brief scene where Loxana and Troy uh, argue. Loxana and Troy. It's a weird way to say that, isn't it? Loxana, Troy, and Deanna, Troy, argue. I have nothing to say about that scene. You should go out and have children and make me a grandmother. It's, it's a cliche for a reason. And unfortunately, I just don't think it was presented that badly, that well. Excuse me. And I say that, be, it makes me feel bad to say that because both of those actors on screen are decent actors. We've seen Majel Barrett do decent acting, and we know Marina Sirtis can do decent acting, and both of them are just clicheing at each other. So it's like, all right. I wonder if that was supposed to be a comedy scene, because if it was, I completely missed it. Then we cut, then we cut forward a little bit. And there's this bit where Riker and Troy are on the planet, and they actually kiss for a second. Now that actually, I thought, as as weird as this is going to sound, was a nice little touch. Because it wasn't a deep, passionate, lustful kiss. There was something more tender and emotional about it. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Troy-Riker shippers were so strong for so long, is because not only did both actors have great chemistry together, because, you know, Marita Sirtis is awesome, and... Jonathan Frakes is awesome, but because of the fact that it was always implied that the connection between the two wasn't just, well, you're hot, but that the two actually really had a deep, firm bond of connection between each other, right? I mean, they made a whole book about it. Some of you know which one I'm talking about. Imzadi, for those of you who don't. The Imzadi book, which is an okay book. 
But anyways, uh, yeah, I, I just, I really get that impression. And a lot of their interactions for that brief scene kind of help to emphasize that connection between the two. It's definitely dipping into romantic territory, but you can tell the two are very strong friends, regardless of romantic connections. I'm reminded of the scene earlier in TNG already that we've already seen at this point in time, where he was thinking about leaving, and she was very upset about this possibility, and the two were hugging, and there was tears. It was a good scene. Then Loxana shows up and ruins everything, as is her purview. And then Tog shows up and kidnaps an official Federation ambassador from Betazoid, a commander of a starship in the current military, or excuse me, maybe or maybe not military, and a lieutenant commander in the same military that may or may not be a military. How stupid is this guy? I know, I know, comedy. I'm supposed to just let it go, but this, this is basically at the point of parody. Now, what compounds this, and please forgive me for complaining about this, is the fact that apparently the Betazoids are incredibly incompetent. I've always been under the weird impression that Beta Z is one of the core worlds of the Federation, either in terms of geography or in terms of literal political affluence and presence, right? I mean, there's a reason that they decided that Betazoid, Beta Z was going to be one of the planets hit by the Dominion in order to have more of an impact on the, on the viewers, because it's a core world, right? It was originally supposed to be Vulcan. I know, I know. And yet, they have no security at all? They, they, they were trying to contact the Enterprise for days, I remind you, plural, while trying to deal with this whole situation, instead of contacting anyone or anything else, as if Beta Zed, again, a core world of the Federation, apparently has no ability to do anything about one of people being kidnapped from their own planet. And they had no sensor logs, and they no, had no planetary defenses, and they had no ships in orbit, and they had nothing whatsoever of any kind to prevent this. And it reminded me of a lot of those little colony worlds we saw all over the place in Season 2 and Season 3. I get the really weird impression that, that Beta Zed was written to be a colony world rather than Beta Zed. You know what I mean? Because if this was just some random colony world that they had jaunted off to to take their vacation, okay, suddenly this makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because they wouldn't have those kind of security things in place. They wouldn't have had that kind of ship support. They wouldn't have had easy access to the rest of the Federation or Starfleet in order to contact for help and assistance. They wouldn't have noticed the Ferengi ship in orbit. Or if they had, they wouldn't have been able to do anything. But, you know, a lot more things make more sense if this is just some random colony potent world. But instead, it's friggin' Betazen! Sorry for getting upset about this, but... You guys know me, kind of a world-building mentality, and this completely pulled me out of the episode in a way that just kind of aggravated me. And it gets even worse, because later on, the Enterprise shows up, finally, after days, and is like, hey, oh gosh, well, let's figure out what happened to them. Well, they have to go physically talk to a person who was nearby as a witness to figure out the course of the crime, the, the, the nature of the crime. They haven't even figured out who kidnapped him yet. They needed a witness from someone who didn't actually see anything. No sensor logs, no security data, no transmissions or any possibility of detecting that a transporter happened or anything like that. No, you know, what actually causes them to find it is they find the flowers that Loxana tossed off to the side. That's pathetic. Like I said, this episode would be a lamentation if not for a couple of elements, neither of which I've really talked about yet. 
This is also ignoring the fact that Tog is astonishingly stupid for what he does. Loxana even calls him on this. They will never let stop hunting you because they're Starfleet officers. Let them go. And he still has to think about that. Well, I don't know. I mean, what's in it for me other than not being hunted down by the greatest military power in the quadrant? I'm sorry. Moving on. <clears throat> Granted, it's not Wolf 359. We're a couple, couple weeks from that, so I guess they're not the greatest military power yet. <laughs> So then they get beamed out of their clothes. I'll admit that was a nice shot. For those of you curious, no, neither actress was actually nude. They had stuff on below the, the site where the camera was doing. That's actually a very common trick for actors to do when it comes to these kind of scenes. It's very rare an actor will actually get nude on camera unless they have some reason to do so, like John Delancey did. <clears throat> Anyways, so they get beamed out, and that's... And then Loxana proceeds with the I'm going to slowly seduce Tog part of the episode. It's funny to me because this is probably the closest thing to clever humor the episode has in the fact that Loxana is presented as so overwhelmingly oblivious to everyone else's disdain for her, which, as I mentioned earlier, I don't actually fully believe, but let's just go with what the episode says. And in addendum to that... Damon Tog is completely oblivious to how much her disdain she has for him. Like, the, this is a kid's cartoon at this point. And what I mean by that, uh, let me explain that, because what I mean by that is this is a bad kid's cartoon. You ever seen kids' television? I'm sure you have, at least at some point in your life. I've been exposed to a lot of it over the last six years as I've been helping to take care of my niece. And one of the things I've noticed is bad kids television likes to do that thing where something happens that is astonishingly obvious to the viewer in order to clue in the viewer that something's going on, assuming that the viewer is stupid. Then they do the thing where nobody in character notices at all. They act as if this is completely normal behavior. Imagine for a moment if my sister came into view right now on camera. She's not going to. She's off at work, I think. Um, she just came into camera right now and just slugged me. Not not in a fun, fond kind of a way. Just as hard as she could. And she broke my glasses. Then she pulls out a knife and stabs me in the shoulder. And imagine if my reaction to this incredibly out-of-character behavior would be to say, huh, So, what do you want to get for dinner? Man, what's up with her today, am I right? <laughs> and that's why that aggravates me. It's not just stupid, it's treating you like you're stupid. And I've said this many, many times, because uh, I already hear the counter-argument, well, they're just kids. Kids are not stupid. There is such a thing as intelligent, intelligent kids television. I've seen it. Over the last six years, it's actually been kind of my little side mission to seek out good kids' television for her to be able to watch so it doesn't treat her like she's a goddamn moron. Because she's not. And that's why this aggravates me. In an episode of Star Trek, which is, does not have the excuse, invalid excuse, but excuse nonetheless, of being a kids' TV show. I mean, yeah, it's more family-friendly, but the point remaining that this is aggravating to see Star Trek treat me like I'm five So, let's now talk about something that this episode did do, which had a lasting impact on Star Trek as a whole. And I'm not kidding. I'm not actually making this up. This is the introduction of Umox to Star Trek, right here in this crap episode. 
All of a the sudden, the, 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 the lobes of the pharynx... Actually, that's not quite true. In, in some of the documents that Gene had back as far as season one, there was a whole thing about the lobes being a thing, but this is the first time it actually enters the show. The lobes are an erogenous zone, and they call it Umox. And I kind of wish that had never been added to Star Trek, to just be as completely blunt about it as I possibly can be. Because... In my blunt opinion, while it's an interesting little thing, and I mean that sincerely, it's nice to flush out creatures and culture and societies, I don't think it has ever been used well, ever, in the history of Star Trek. Please feel free to disagree with me on this. Maybe I'm just not thinking of something off the top of my head because I'm aggravated at this episode. But if you're going to introduce a cultural point, like a biological cultural point like that, do something with it other than just having it as a weak spot for Ferengi, right? <sighs> Anyways. <clears throat> so that's one, So we find out about Umox. That's wonderful. And then there's the really awkward kiss. And then there's just this weird moment where the episode just like pauses for a second for Picard to gush about how awesome this nebula is. It's just this one scene. It comes out of nowhere, and it goes nowhere. It's just... It's all of a sudden as if you're on the middle of... I don't know, analogy. you're in the middle of an analogy, and all of a sudden the analogy just stops, and you look out, and, and someone grabs your head and forces you to look over and says, did you, did you see those trees? Those trees are really pretty. And then you go back to the analogy. <laughs> I was thinking like a roller coaster, I don't know. Oh my god. In the interest of trying to be positive about this episode, there is one thing that I actually liked about this episode. And I know this is going to sound so strange, but it's... It's the interactions between Jonathan Frakes and uh, Nybor, I believe is his name. It's, it's the chess-playing Ferengi. I know that sounds so stupid, but in all in total sincerity, he has better chemistry with that random Ferengi, whose name I don't even remember, I don't think they say it in the episode, than Loxana does with Tog, and that's most of the effort of the episode is on those two interacting. <laughs> what? And the way Frakes, excuse me, the way Riker just completely plays him, starts playing chess with him, and then, you know, convinces him to let him out, and then just... The whole thing, it, it, I'll admit, it got a legitimate laugh out of me. So it's one of the only good things about this whole episode. One of three good things, I'm sorry, I just realized there's actually three good things in this episode that saved it from lamentation status. Anywho, I do actually like that the Frankie let him out just to preserve gaming pride. I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but as I've mentioned before, gaming pride is actually one of my own character flaws that I've been trying to fight against for most of my life. Uh, I'm the person who, if someone says, oh, you can't do this, uh, like, for example, actually, this is a real example. Once upon a time, I had a friend of mine who was like, oh, so you speedrun Mega Man, huh? Go ahead and pick up this controller and play this thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And I ended up screwing up, and it bothered me a lot. Not, he didn't think I was lying. He knew I was good at Mega Man, and I knew how to play. I am actually good at Mega Man, and I'm like, Ugh. but my gamer pride was bothered. So I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And I shouldn't have, because we had to get going, and went blah, blah, blah. My point being, I can kind of see the mentality there of, okay, fine, come on out here and play chess. I'll prove to you that I'm not that bad at chess. You know, it's just an amusing little tidbit. So then they decide to go, well, okay, so then Wesley figures out where they are, and they chase after them at the jaw-dropping speed of warp 8. Now, warp 8 is not exactly slow, but they actually have a line establishing that the Marauder can go as fast as the galaxy earlier in this episode. So why aren't they going full tilt to try and get there? 
given this problem. Although given that, I actually wonder at how the range of their sensors being able to pick up basically random static in a warp trail. But anyways, I digress. Let's not even get into that. So then Loxana's like, I give you my word. And Damon Tog says, like, I, I give you my word. And what's really weird is the way he says that is totally legitimate. I find it a missed opportunity. I wish the Ferengi, well, were more fleshed out, first and foremost. But too often the Ferengi are portrayed as stupid, evil, greedy. Right? Those three specific character points all mesh together. And I would have liked it more if they removed the stupid from that. Or po possibly the evil from that. Like, let me explain what I mean. If I was designing the Ferengi, I would, make, I would add something so that they really do consider the deal, the very social construct of an agreement, to be something that is absolutely binding. Now, they have to actually say, I agree to this, or you have my word, or whatever. Some kind of way to officiate it. But if a Ferengi says, I agree to this, I like the idea that Ferengi culturally, societally, would consider that hard law, written in stone, so to speak. I think that would have been an interesting way to help flesh out the Ferengi as a people. It, would also, it could also lead to scenes where you know, someone's trying to force a Ferengi into a, such a contract, or you know, one particular Ferengi happens to break it, and, this, and the other Ferengi being like, oh my god, you know, something like that. Instead, this is like one of the only times in Star Trek where a Ferengi gives his word and it keeps it. Anyways, remember, we're still kind of designing the Ferengi, even at this point in time. Although, again, as I pointed out earlier, we've officially reached the point where they are now comedy. So, you know. So then Picard does his, <laughs> his scene. This is the third thing I mentioned, the third good part of the episode. Because Picard just launches into it and, and launches a billion internet memes over the next several years, or from then to now, anyways. But what I find funny is Picard stutters horribly. Like, he just can't bring himself to lie. He's not a good liar. And so he decides to go into theatrics. Full-on rhetoric. Just starts, just starts launching into it. And what's funny is, this is, this is a legitimately good part of the episode. And again, legitimately made me laugh. Because if you pay attention, it's not just him ranting Shakespeare at the screen. But she starts feeding him. You know, I, I know you've killed so many of my other ones. And the two have a surprisingly good dynamic as they both try to slowly escalate this con on Tog. And there's this great bit where she feeds a line to him and Picard imme immediately picks up on it. I will possess her! Oh, I'm going to count to ten. If she is not in my arms within ten seconds, blow up the Ferengi vessel. Ten! Nine! And then he, he, he takes his time, he, he plays it perfectly, because uh, his initial countdown is very slow, to give the other time, person time to process that they're on a timer. If you say so, to someone, do something in ten seconds, it usually takes about five seconds for that to really process and for them to start doing it. So he takes time, nine, eight, ah, uh, tis better to have loved and lost, to have never loved at all, but a black quote, seven... Six. And then he finally gives his final line, and then he just starts five, four, three. Because again, now he's actually giving the real countdown, and Tog freaks out and sends her over, and we get the conclusion of the episode, basically. But that's not actually the conclusion of the episode, is it? I haven't been talking about Wesley at all, because I wanted to talk about him separate. He gets very little screen time in this episode, but I really like almost everything about his scenes. That's a weird feeling when Wesley Crusher is one of the best things about an episode of Star Trek, but this is also not the first time I've said that in this series of ruminations, is it? 
I like the idea of him going off to the academy and having to cope with that. It's a surprisingly realistic, down-to-earth, coming-of-age problem. You know, going off to college for the first time. Or when you go out to start your first job or whatever. When you move out for the first time. You know, that's a thing. And the episode treats it pretty well, for the most part. With, with two exceptions, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, the episode treats it as if this is something that Wesley, in all his excitement, hasn't even really thought about. Which was pretty much true for me, too, back in the day. I'm sure it was for some of you as well. And they talk about, don't worry, I mean, you're going to be leaving your family. Yeah, but you're going to find a whole new family, whole new people. The way, it, it really is basically the whole, you're leaving the nest kind of a thing. And the way Jordy talks to him about it, the way Data talks to him about it, everyone treats Wesley as if this is a good thing, but still a thing that brings tears. And it hits that dynamic very well. I also like um, how... There's a bit towards the end of the episode when Wesley figures it out, and Picard turns to Wesley and says, Now, no lengthy farewells, pause, good luck. And Patrick Stewart, of course, nails those lines. He has, it's so few lines, I wrote them down exactly. <laughs> but he nails the exact emotion of each, pres each line that he's saying, each word that he's saying there. Gets his attention, you gotta go, there's no need to drag this out, We'll miss you. And every, all of that is conveyed in the way he says it. And Wesley takes one last look around the bridge and leaves. And it's a really powerful scene. It is then immediately ruined by the fact that he runs back up to find Riker. Let me explain why that bothers me. This is Star Trek. Remote communication is a thing. Wesley could have tapped a thing and said, I'm sorry, Riker, Captain, really quick. There's a thing in the audio, blah, 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 and explained all this point. And then they're like, oh, we have to beam me over. Okay, beam me over, but I need to keep in contact with the captain. I'm working on a project right now. And they'll be like, okay, hang on, we'll beam you over. Okay, here's a comm panel. What do you need to tell Picard? Okay. And they still could have had Wesley leaving and still had him help save the day one last time. You know, right? And I also like how they don't treat Wesley like he's the only one who could figure this out. It's more like Wesley has a nice creative mind. In other words, he's good at starting a ball rolling, and a lot of the people around him are good at taking it and making it work. This episode makes that very clear. Several of the good Wesley episodes do. Even right at the beginning where they say, you know, I'd like to take all the credit, but Wes was the one who posited the original idea for this new circuitry thing, right? Everyone else made it and made it work, but Wes was the inventor, the idea person. And I like that because not only does it bring Wesley down a bit from the kid who saves the ship by himself, but it also makes it so that he's part of a team, which has been part of Wesley's character growth for most of the show at this point, especially starting in season two, actually making Wesley part of a unit rather than someone who is, well, frankly, a bit socially maladjusted and kind of stuck on his own, right? <sighs> so... That leads me to the other trip up. Everyone treats it as though the fact that he didn't get on this ship to go over, keeping in mind that the entire process of them leaving, capturing the Ferengi, and then coming back, takes minutes in universe. For some reason, those minutes mean he can never, like, he has to wait another year for applying to the Academy. Now, I've already complained about this, and I've seen several interesting comments from you guys helping to elaborate on this, but the whole extremely restri restrictive thing to get into the academy is stupid 
And the way the episodes constantly portray it is also stupid. But what I find most interesting is not the Academy thing itself, but the the choice to not have Wesley leave for the Academy. I, I, I know that sounds like a weird thing. I've already pointed this out, but I feel it was a huge misstep for TNG to keep the camera always focused on the Enterprise. I've actually already talked about that, my idea that Riker could have actually left the ship over in the Icarus Factor and been relevant and had his own story on the side in, in, you know, in, as episodes go on and then be brought back for Best of Both Worlds. I still think that would be the right decision. Having Wesley Bach in the Academy also opens up new story ideas, new potential, new possibilities, new perspective, a way to show viewers a side of Starfleet that, frankly, isn't really shown all that often, at least not at this point in history. Later on, we'll see more of Starfleet Academy, and indeed, they even do this exact thing when Wesley finally does go to the Academy, at least for one episode, uh, the first duty, I believe. But for some reason, they just, no, reset button. But that being said, I do really like the scene where he gets the promotion. I already mentioned the whole, you know, Roddenberry giving him the wings. I wonder if Wheaton still has those wings. And I also mentioned the idea of, uh, you know, Colin Powell showing up and make this a big deal. But I just want to say, I think the uniform suits him. I really do. I think, I think that was a good move and a good moment. It just, it would have been nicer if that had happened. And then he went to the academy, you know, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a moment later, or maybe even earlier than this. I don't know. Something. But all I know is that this episode was not good overall. Barely saved from lamentation status. I hope you've enjoyed my rantings about this. I'll see you guys next time.